Take your copy of God's Word and uh, open it with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. <clears throat> As we, excuse me, continue uh, in, in our in our woven series. Ephesians is, um, I think, a favorite book of many, and for a lot of different reasons. Uh, for some, it's uh, it's a, a nice book to read because uh, uh, a nice book of scripture because Paul is so logical and so uh, a type. He's so linear in his thinking that he he begins and builds a consistent argument uh, all the way through just about all of his letters, and he he does it certainly in Ephesians. Ephesians is. Uh, split nicely in half. The first three chapters of Ephesians kind of deal with theology, and the second three chapters of Ephesians deal with ethics, uh, how we ought to live in light of what we know is true about God. Ephesians may be your favorite because of passages like uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, that so succinctly tie up the truth of the gospel, where Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. There are myriad reasons to love the book of Ephesians, and so you just pick one and determine to love it, because it's good. Uh, The book of Ephesians itself is written by, as we know, the Apostle Paul. And uh, that is mentioned to us at the beginning of his letter, uh, chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He tells us at the beginning, uh, that it was he who wrote it. The writing of the book of Ephesians was likely took place between the years 60 and 62 AD, very likely during Paul's, uh, imprisonment toward the end of his life as he's sitting there in prison in Rome, maybe waiting to, uh, plead his case before Caesar takes time to write to many of the churches that he had helped to plant throughout his Throughout his missionary travels, we know from Scripture, particularly in Acts, that Paul spent two years in the city of Ephesus, uh, longer than any other place that he had spent in all of his uh, his missionary ministry. He spent these two years in Ephesus during his third missionary journey and placed young Timothy there as a sort of senior elder who was tasked with appointing elders, uh, pastors, overseers for the church there in Ephesus. We know that Ephesus itself was a major city in the Roman Empire. It lay on the intersection of major land and sea trading routes. uh, And it was the home to the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus itself was a city obsessed with magic and idol worship. Uh, Paul had no little conflagration with some of the silversmiths there in Ephesus and, uh, and, and got into quite a bit of a conflict with some uh, idol makers who were there in Ephesus. We know that Paul, during the two years that he was there, had a massively fruitful ministry in Ephesus and that the church there thrived even in his absence. We learn more about the city of Ephesus from uh, Paul's time there uh, that we read in Acts. We can learn more about Ephesus and the people there uh, from Paul's two letters to Timothy. Even John in his revelation addresses part of uh, uh, the book of Revelation, part of that, that letter there to the church in Ephesus. And so we, we probably know more about Ephesus as a city and the, Ephesians as, and the Ephesians as a church than maybe any other group of Christians in the New Testament. Ephesians is 
unlike 1 Corinthians or even Colossians uh, that we'll see here in a few months, Ephesians is an encouraging letter where 1 Corinthians and Colossians are written to correct some errors that were in the church that Paul was writing to. The book of Ephesians is written without any apparent correction of error at all. It's hard to find any fault in the church at Ephesus. In it, Paul spends, and here's just a short summary of Ephesians. Paul spends, like we said, the first three chapters reminding the Ephesians of the miracle of their salvation, which is brought about by the gracious gift of God according to God's eternal purposes received by faith in Jesus Christ. This grace, we learn, as Paul teaches us, transcends both ethnic and national differences, uniting all who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, whether they're Jew or Gentile or barbarian or Scythian, whatever. The final three chapters, then, of Ephesus focus the Ephesians' attention, and our attention as well, on how believers are to live in a manner consistent with the grace that they have been saved by. So I've titled this sermon uh, tonight, Called by Grace to Walk in It. And that's really kind of a a one-sentence outline of the book of Ephesians. You've been called by grace, God's grace to save you from your sin, received by faith, and you've been saved by God's grace in order to walk in grace, to walk in grace with other believers, to walk in grace with uh, outsiders, those who are not yet believers. And so that being the case, there are two major themes in the book of Ephesus. The first is God's saving sovereign grace, and we'll see much of that in chapters 1 and 2. And then we see, secondly, the Christian pursuit of unity and holiness, that, that this is not an option for the believer. It's, it's not uh, optional for, for one who says they know Christ to pursue unity with others and other brothers and sisters and holiness in their own life. Uh, it is a requirement. This is what we do out of lives that have been brought from death to life. We pursue oneness with each other and sanctity in the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians, like every other book of the Bible, falls into the scope of God's redemption history, that great story of the gospel that is told from uh, the beginning in Genesis, knowing that God, who is the creator of all things, made man in his own image to know, love, and worship him. But man, Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned in the garden, and thus came the fall. Their fall uh, from their right relationship with God, their expulsion out of the Garden of Eden, the sin that would then inhabit the heart and the nature of all human beings who have lived from then on, you and me, we are products of the fall. God, we know, does not leave us in our fallen state or intend for us to, to remain there forever having made us for a relationship of, uh, that we might know, love, and worship Him, He's also made a way for us to be redeemed, to be rescued, to be saved from our sin. That redemption comes perfectly in Jesus Christ, uh, God's own Son, who lived a sinless life, died the death that we deserve, and was raised from the dead for our justification with God. And we know that God's ultimate redemption story will end with consummation, with Him making everything right in Himself, uniting all things in Christ Jesus, as we'll see a little bit later uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. The book of Ephesians reminds us of two movements of God's redemptive history, particularly redemption, that we have been saved by God's grace, rescued from sin. And it points us, in some sense, to that that coming day when God will make all things right when Christ returns again. And so, if we're to locate Ephesus in the scope of redemption history, it would be around those final two acts, if you will, of redemption history, uh, redemption and consummation. 
Now, Ephesians, like so many other books that we've looked at uh, in the New Testament already, is an epistle. It's a, a letter written to a specific church with a, a specific occasion or, or conflict to address. Now, we've said that Ephesians doesn't have uh, any specific conflicts that are addressed, addressed in it. And so it could be that the occasion for Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus is just he knows he's at the end of his life. And he wants to encourage those that have come to faith in Christ through his ministry to just keep walking faithfully. Most New Testament epistles begin with a theological foundation and move to practical application. We've seen that in other books. We'll see the exact same thing here in Ephesians tonight. And so when you're studying Ephesians on your own, uh, or Galatians or Colossians or whatever other letter, uh, use uh, the following questions. And these are printed in your worship guide to guide your reading and application. What's the occasion? What's the purpose? What's the issue uh, for the author's writing? What theological principles are guiding the letter? What's the theological grounding? What is the, the stuff about God, the doctrines that are being uh, taught or, or described that are important to the rest of the letter? What, what of those things do I need to know? And then in what ways is the occasion of the letter or the setting of the people in Ephesus? How is it similar to mine in my own present day? And, and how do I go about living in obedience to God's word? Uh, here in Ephesians or any of the other, any of the other epistles. Uh, Ephesians in outline has, I think, about six parts, if I were to outline it. Now, I'm no scholar, uh, but I, I did read through Ephesians several times. So, I don't know, take it for what it is. But here's how I would outline Ephesians. First of all, in chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 23, the whole first chapter, you have God's purpose in redemption. Paul describing what God is doing in saving people. Then in chapter 2, you have the description of the miracle of salvation by grace for all who believe. In chapter 3, Paul outlines and describes what he calls the mystery of the gospel. That Jews and Gentiles are united by faith in Christ. Chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16, Paul uh, encourages unity in the body of Christ because of the one Savior, the one God, the one Spirit that we have fellowship with through faith in Christ. Then in, from chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul describes a life of repentance, submission, and love that every believer ought to be walking in. I, I think chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 6, verse 9, compose one long sort of ethical um, uh, portion of this letter where Paul is giving very specific instruction about Christian living. And then finally, in chapter 6, verses 10 through 24, we have the theme of standing strong in the strength of the Lord. We have the very uh, familiar passage about putting on the armor of God, which we'll look at a little bit later there. The importance of uh, clothing ourselves in the things that God provides and in the power of his word uh, for living lives of holiness in a world that, let's just face it, is not very holy. As we turn our uh, attention now to the text of God's word to Ephesians, let me just pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Gracious Father, we do give you thanks again for your word, which is here before us tonight. We thank you for using your servant Paul and speaking through him to the church at Ephesus that, that Christians uh, many generations later uh, may learn from your word uh, to their church and, and, and by your inspiration to, to every church. God, may we find the foundation of our faith in Jesus tonight as we look at the first half of Ephesians. And may we be moved and transformed by what we know about how we have been saved to 
live in light of the grace that you have extended to us as we look at the second half of this book tonight. God, we want to be a people whose lives are resting on your word and whose behavior matches what we see in Jesus and matches what we see in so many of the other commands of Scripture. And so transform our hearts and conform us into the image of Christ by the power of your own spirit, living in each one of us who has been called uh, to faith in Jesus as a gift of your grace. We give you this evening. God, have your way in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles, hopefully they already are, to Ephesians, and uh, we're just going to kind of move logically through. I tend to think logically like Paul, and so when Paul writes logically, I just find it helpful to follow right along. So that's kind of what we'll do. We'll take Ephesians in more or less the order that I've outlined it earlier. First of all, we'll look at it in two movements with three parts each. The first movement is, is this, called by grace. It's the first half of the sermon title, called by grace to walk in it. Chapters 1 through 3 tell us how we as believers have been called by God's grace. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul describes to the Ephesian church God's purpose in redemption. God's plan for saving people from their sins. If we're to learn anything from this first chapter of Ephesians, it is this. It is that God is incredibly more awesome and incredibly more wise than we can ever fathom. Paul says a lot about the blessings that Christians have by God's grace in Christ to us here in in, in just this first chapter. And I hope you'll indulge me. I want to read about 10 verses, Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 14. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Paul has a way of packing a lot of information into just a few words uh, in in. The original language in which Paul wrote in Greek, these 10 verses are are really only about two or three sentences. Paul is not a great writer. He likes to write run-on sentences and, 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 and tag things on to other phrases and clauses all along the way. But there's so much good stuff in just these first few verses. But what I want to point out to us here this evening is the purpose of God in all of this. You see that word or or that phrase, according to the purpose of his will in verse 5. We see according to his purpose again in verse 9. We see in verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things uh, according to the counsel of his will. 
God is surely at work in redemption. And redemption is surely God's work. It is surely his plan and his purpose that he is working out. Uh, Paul is very quick on the front end of Ephesians to say, you have nothing to do with your salvation. You did not affect it. You did not earn it. You did not, you did not get anything for yourself in it. You didn't even plan it. It was God's plan and his purpose being brought about in you. Without a doubt, we have much to be grateful for as believers. Things to be grateful for here in these verses that we've read. Adoption as sons of God, the grace of God, rescue from sin, the inheritance of the resurrection and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. But do not miss who is doing all of these things and the purpose of their accomplishment for us. It is God who blesses. It is God who blesses from before the foundation of the world. It is God who, who blesses as he predestines us for adoption as his sons. It is God who blesses according to the purpose of his will. It is God who blesses to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 1 is all about God and his divine independent action and determination to save sinners from their sin so that he would receive the glory God is supremely gracious, and he alone is eternally wise. He is surprised by nothing. He superintends everything, and he gets all the glory in our redemption. In this way, Paul gives us a short, sort of cosmic, eternal perspective, if you will, on our salvation. Ephesians 1 is like looking at salvation from a, a heavenly, divine perspective, in as much as we are able to do that. Salvation is a personal reality for the one who trusts Jesus. Yes, absolutely. But it is all worked out by the grace of God, according to his purposes, which are his fame in the cosmos. The purpose for God saving us from our sin is so that he would be glorified. In light of God's purpose in redemption, I think the most appropriate response to, for, for us is to simply stand in awe and humility before this awesome God. To just take him in and to behold his glory, to see his goodness, that, that, that far beyond our wisdom and, and our plans, he is able to do uh, more abundantly than, than we could ever imagine, even for ourselves. Dear friends, who is there in all the universe like this God who would make it his plan to save wretched sinners from their sin? Wretched sinners who previously shunned him and his authority, saving them by sending his son to die for them so that they might be his children. Who, what other God is, is like this? No other God is as sovereign. No other God is as supreme. No other God is as worthy of worship. No other God is as caring of his creation. No other God is as willing to give of his grace for the good of his enemies than this one. Stand in awe and humility before this awesome God. His purposes in redemption begin to be explained to us in Ephesians chapter 1. And then Ephesians chapter 2, Paul goes kind of from the cosmic view of salvation to the very personal, the granular view of salvation. And we see that salvation, us being saved from sin, is really, in every true sense of the word, a miracle. It's a miracle. Salvation is, in of itself, a resurrection story. Did you know that? Your story of coming to faith in Jesus is a resurrection story. Look at chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 1 through 10. Again, permit me to read a longer passage. Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Your salvation story is a resurrection story. You were dead, Paul says, but God has raised us up. Salvation is all about going from spiritual death to spiritual life. And here in chapter 2, Paul reminds the Ephesians of the personal realities of their salvation. You once had no hope, but now by faith in Christ, you have all hope. You once had no life in and of yourself, but now in Christ, you have eternal life. You once were dead, but God has brought you to life. The Ephesians, Paul, me, you, used to be dead in sin, incapable of any righteousness on our own. And we were separated from God by our sin. But like verse 4 of chapter 2 says, but God, God Steps in. God takes action to raise dead people to life as a gift of his grace to be received in the hearts of dead sinners by faith in Jesus. Your salvation story is a miracle story. Dear friend, if you are one like me who came to faith in Jesus uh, as, a, as a young child, six, seven, eight years old. Grew up in church because your parents always took you there and you don't remember a time where you weren't around the body of Christ and in the gospel. And you tend to think that your salvation story is kind of boring. Like I grew up in church. I made a decision to follow Jesus. It was genuine, but it's baptized when I was six and I've just kind of been going to church since no big deal. Quit thinking in such unmiraculous terms about your salvation. Because even if you grew up in church, you were still a sinner dead in your sins. Even if you were around the gospel from the moment of your birth, you still needed the miracle of God's grace to bring you to life so you could place faith in Jesus and trust him for your salvation. Even if you came to God in the most unauspicious, bland, vanilla sort of way, know that your salvation is a miracle and rejoice in that. Rebuke your own heart for telling you it's not special. It is. Dear friend, if you have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, God has wrought a miracle in your life that no other person nor yourself can bring about for you. So rejoice. Give God the glory for your salvation and resist the temptation to ever think too highly of yourself. There's nothing that we could do to save ourselves and there's nothing that we can do because salvation is a gift of God to, to lose that salvation. But God has brought us to life, giving us faith to trust in Jesus that we might be saved. Salvation is a miracle. Then, as Paul continues this theological grounding for everything he's going to say in the rest of his book, he 
opens up to the Ephesians in chapter 3 about the mystery of the gospel, which is unity in Christ. Paul begins to make this point at the end of chapter 2, and, and he nails it down in chapter 3, but, but he couches the gospel in the context of this word, mystery. In chapter 3, verse 4, he says, when you read this, you can perceive uh, my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, mystery does not mean something that is unknown, right? Mystery is not uh, something that, that uh, it's not this knowledge that we can never hope to gain this side of heaven or, or whatever. It does not mean something that is unknown, but rather something that is humanly impossible to totally comprehend. Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 6, this mystery that I'm talking about, this thing that's hard to comprehend, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This thing that is difficult to understand is that Jews and Gentiles in Christ are no longer separated, but are united. It's hard to understand because they've been separated throughout all the history of Israel, but now in Christ they're brought together. Because it is the same God who works salvation in Jews and in Gentiles, both by grace through faith in Christ. There is then no reason for the two groups to any longer separate themselves from each other. The beauty of the miracle of salvation is that there are no longer ethnic separations in the body of Christ. Now, does that mean that there are no longer ethnicities? No, but it means that there are no longer ethnic separation. All right. So uh, I am a, a, a part of the body of Christ, the same as a, an African-American or Hispanic or Chinese brother or sister is a member of the body of Christ. There is no distinction. There's no hierarchy among the races. And all of us worship the same God and we can all worship the same God in the same congregation. Neither should cultural differences divide us. But if Christ is Lord of all, we can in love for Christ Come together in peace and unity around Jesus. That is what Paul is telling us. Notice that it is through the imperfect, but God-ordained body of Christ, that is the church, that reveals this gospel ministry of unity or mystery of unity. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 go this way. Paul says, so through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Should not be human governments that call individuals to unity across national uh, and, and ethnic lines, but the church. It should be the church who are calling for ethnic and national uh, 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 unity around Jesus. It should be the church that teaches the world and the powers of the world, the kingdoms and authorities about what true unity looks like. We who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, we who have been brought from death to life and united to Jesus and to one another, we have the clearest message and clearest motivation for unity in all things, Jesus and the grace of God. So, dear friend, knowing that the mystery of the gospel is that in Christ there's no longer ethnic or national or cultural divisions, but we are all united in Jesus. Every man, woman, child of every tribe, nation, tongue, race, nationality who has placed faith in him, knowing that, then do this. Encourage unity in the church. Encourage unity in the church. Give yourself to the service of the gospel and to others in the body of Christ to which you belong. Now, this requires a fundamental shift in 
our entertainment-saturated culture and minds. To really pursue unity and to serve others in the church the way that we've been saved to love and to serve. We have to, we have to separate what we do on Sunday mornings and, and throughout the week as a body of believers when we gather. We have to separate that from what we do in other places with padded chairs and people talking to us. Right? This room and what happens in this room on any given Sunday is not the same as what happens at Rio 24 or Movies West or Premier Theaters in Rio Rancho. They have padded seats there and there's something going on in front of us, but what we do in here is not the same as what we do there. Neither is what we do in here the same as what we do when we go to the pit or to University Stadium or to the lab to watch the, the isotopes play. What we do here is, is not a practice in consumerism. What we do here is a practice of service. What we do here is not for our own entertainment. What we do here is for the service of others who are different from us, but united to us and to Jesus by our mutual faith in him. Encouraging unity in the church and giving ourselves to the service of the gospel and to others requires a shift away from thinking about my needs while at church to a consideration of others. It is to go from asking, what did I get out of church today? To asking, who did I serve in the body today? How did I help others to engage in worship? What did my attitude and my interactions say about what Christ has done for me? What brother or sister in Christ am I closer to today that apart from Christ I would not have even bothered to know? Christ has saved us to be unified. And we display that when we actively encourage and seek unity in the church by giving of ourselves to the service of the gospel and to the service of others. This is in part, in a very cursory uh, examination, what it means to be called by grace. That God, according to his purpose, has, sa- has saved sinners for his glory to demonstrate the mystery of the gospel, which is that in Christ there is only one people. And now, Paul says... Having been called by grace, walk in it, live in it. And so he moves in chapter chapters four through six to show us what it means to walk in this grace that we have been saved by. Walking in grace first begins with unity. And he continues on this theme of unity from chapter three into chapter four, telling the church and telling us that unity leads to maturity. Unity in Christ leads to growing up in Christ. The first three verses of chapter four set the stage for what follows in the rest of the book. Here, Paul shifts from what is true about the gospel to how it impacts our lives. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Maintaining unity comes, as Paul instructs, through the help of those that God has given to equip the church for this work. Namely, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd, teachers that he mentions in chapter 4, verse 11. These people, these uh, uh, offices, these leaders in the church, these gifts to the church exist, as Paul says in verses 12 and following, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by, ha- by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul wants the church to grow up. 
to grow up in unity and to grow up in maturity, looking like Jesus more today than we did yesterday and more tomorrow than we do today. Unity is meant to bring about maturity. As the more we become unified in Christ, the more we become unified in the gospel rightly declared, the more we grow up into Jesus who is our head. Being together on the gospel, agreeing in the gospel should lead us to grow in Christ. To be more like him today, uh, as I said, than we were yesterday and more like him tomorrow than we are today. Unity in the fundamentals of the gospel should lead to charity, to grace in non-essentials. So unity in the person and work of Christ, when we all together as a church agree on that, we can walk in grace with things that we may not all agree on, like the chronology of the end times. We can all agree that there's one way to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of ourselves, not by works so that no man can boast. And yet we can disagree with grace about whether we ought to be premillennialists, amillennialists, or postmillennialists, or panmillennialists. I believe it'll all just pan out in the end. I told that joke to my wife once not too long ago, and she got a good kick out of that. And I was really surprised at such a corny joke that she hadn't heard it before. Unity is meant to beget maturity. And when we grow in unity about the most important things in the gospel, we can walk in grace with the less important things. And the charity that we have in non-essentials leads to real maturity that knows the difference between mountains and molehills. And maturity that can lead us to choose wisely what hills are really worth dying on. Isn't it funny the things that some churches choose to, the hills that they choose to die on? The color of the carpet, the arrangement of the chairs... The color of paint on the walls, where the pastor stands after the service, right? What, what words or, or what sort of attire a person may wear when they're standing on the, on the platform. Churches have split and died over these things. And all the while they say, oh, we're united in the gospel. We all believe the gospel the same way. But their unity in the gospel has not led to maturity. Because unity in the gospel ought to lead such churches to be so mature so as to say, you know what, my preferences don't really matter so long as the gospel is rightly declared. My preferences don't really matter so long as my soul is being fed and I have a place to, as in maturity and in consistency with what God's word commands me to do, to help others follow Jesus better. Unity, true unity in the gospel begets maturity. So dear friend, then, Mature in Christ by pursuing unity in Christ. May we as a church mature, grow up in Jesus by pursuing unity in him. It's not the task of the Christian to ensure that every other Christian in the church thinks exactly like they do and shares all the same preferences or maybe even uh, secondary or, or tertiary theological convictions. It's not my job to make little Stevens. Nor is it Pastor Danny's job to make little Danny's. It's not the job of our Sunday school teachers to make little Joes, Bobs, Pauls, Corys, Jonies. But for each of us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. I don't make disciples of Stephen. I make disciples of Jesus. Anything other is only going to bring disunity and tribalism within the church. So friends, if you see me trying to make disciples of Stephen and not disciples of Jesus, you call me on it. Because that's not good for the maturity of our body. The point is for each of us to make disciples of Jesus. He's the head of the church. And it is he that we are to grow up into. So seek unity in Christ, dear friends, and the fundamental doctrines of the gospel so that we might grow into mature Christians more and more as time goes on. Unity brings about maturity. And then Paul teaches us that maturity looks a lot like repentance. 
You ever want to know what it looks like to be a mature believer? It looks a lot like repentance. Maturity in Christ, Paul teaches, changes the way that we live. So what does a mature Christian look like? Older, gray-haired, bearded, holding a giant Bible, having many disciples and acolytes of his own? No, maturity looks like repentance. Encouraging their unity in Christ who unifies and maturity in Christ who is our example. Paul now says in Ephesians four seventeen through 23, he says, This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in truth, righteousness, in true righteousness and holiness. Repentance is often hard to describe, isn't it? Literally, we know that the word repent means to turn the other way, to make a U-turn from sin and selfishness, to follow after Christ instead. But wouldn't it be helpful to know what repentance looked like, to just have a mental picture or a physical image of it? Well, the new self that Paul describes is a new person created by the saving grace of Jesus that looks totally different from the sin in which we once walked. Paul gives in the verses that follow several examples of what repentance looks like. For example, look at Ephesians 4 verse 28. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Now, some might say for the thief that repentance means you just stop stealing. But that's not really repentance. Repentance requires, if I can uh, illustrate using my own uh, body, repentance requires stopping moving in the direction we're going towards sin, turning around and moving in the direction of God. Very often what we think and what we satisfy our own consciences with as repentance looks like this. I'm walking towards sin. I'm convicted about it. So I stop. That's this is not repentance. Staying here is not repentance. The thief no longer stealing is not repentance. What does Paul say? Repentance for the thief is no longer stealing, but instead turning from his sin, walking in the direction of God, laboring with his hands, doing honest work so that he can have something to share with anyone in need. You see, repentance is the equal and, and opposite reaction or response to our previous sin. So for the thief who takes what is not his to, to pad his own pockets, for him, repentance is to work hard to give of himself for the benefit of others who may or may not deserve it. Repentance looks like a Christ-enabled, holiness-pursuing, equal and opposite movement away from sin and toward the righteousness that God has, by his grace, saved us for and called us to. Repentance also looks like a turn from selfishness to mutual submission. In our sinfulness, we want for ourselves whatever we can get for ourselves most of the time. And repentance from that is, is not to just simply stop being selfish, not to simply stop looking out for your own good, but it is to then turn and begin looking out for the good of others. It is to, to not simply stop seeking your way, but, also, but to look to see how you can submit to the, to, uh, to the way or defer to the way of others. Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, and then 20 and 21, 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In verse 20, he picks up giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is important for us to note that submission to one another in love and reverence for Christ finds its fullest expression in the home and in the family. In chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 4, Paul gives very clear instruction to wives, to husbands, to children, and to fathers. These are not suggestions, but are commands to Christians who intend to walk in in the grace that they have been called uh, and saved by. As we read in chapter 5, verse 20, verses 22 and following, wives are to submit to their husbands who are to be, by God's design, the spiritual leaders of the home in the same way that the church submits itself to Christ. Now, you need to understand that submission in the biblical context is not necessarily what our culture would want us to think of uh, in terms of submission. Our culture would have us think that submission means becoming a doormat to the will of somebody else. But in the biblical sense, submission is deferring to uh, the wisdom of others, deferring to the role that God has given to others in our life and for our good, supporting them so that they can lead us in the way that Christ has led us, so that we can respond to them the way Christ has responded to us. And so wives are called to submit to their husbands because men are called to be the spiritual leaders in the home and in the church. This is a major responsibility for us, gentlemen. Major responsibility for us to lead our wives as Christ led the church, to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. And so Paul says that this is precisely what husbands are to do. Paul gives one word to wives about submitting to their husbands, but then four times he says to husbands, you love your wives. Love them in a manner reflecting the love of Christ to the church who gave himself up for her so that she can be holy and sanctified presented to himself as a a bride ready for the wedding day. Men, this is how we are to lead and to love our wives with Christ as our example. Now, in this relationship of marriage, of mutual love and submission and and, uh, and deference to one another, Paul goes back to that mystery of the gospel. And in Ephesians 5, 32 and 33, he says, this mystery is profound. The, the, The fact that Our marriages are supposed to somehow give an illustration of the gospel. There's something mysterious about that. There's something about that, that this side of heaven, I can't fully comprehend. But this mystery is profound, Paul says, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Our marriages, Paul teaches, are meant to reflect the, uh, as we learned this word a few weeks ago, the ineffable grace of God in Christ to sinners. And the union of Christ to the church. Your marriage, rightly ordered, should be a bold declaration of the gospel. It's not about husbands denigrating their wives. And it's not about uh, wives holding resentment against their husbands. It's about husbands leading and loving their wives as Christ leads and loves the church. And it's about wives following the Christ-like leadership of their husbands the same way that the church follows Jesus. Paul presses further into the family in the beginning of chapter 6 to say that children are to obey their parents as gifts of God for their protection and teaching. And likewise, fathers are to be gentle and firm at the same time, not provoking their children to anger, but instead bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Walking in grace 
maturity in Christ looks a lot like repentance and a lot like submission. Submission, dear friends, is a Christian virtue. Submission is not a dirty word. Submission and deference to others is not a bad thing. It is a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-declaring sort of thing that we do. So let us seek to be uh, submitted to one another. Let us seek to submit into the, in the roles that God has, has uh, given to us in our lives. And let we who have the responsibility of leading and loving and giving spiritual nourishment to those who are submitting to us, let us do it with all the fervor uh, that we can muster with the help of the Holy Spirit to look like Jesus in the process. Knowing that maturity looks a lot like repentance. I think we ought to be encouraged to seek growth in Christ, maturity in Christ, by turning from what you want to do in order to do what Christ has modeled for us. Stop doing what you want to do and turn to do what Christ has modeled for us. Brothers and sisters, this will be undeniably hard. Repentance is not easy. The further our culture and society moves away from the biblical norms uh, that define gender and marriage and parenting and, and all of those sorts of things, the weirder that we are going to look to the world as we follow Jesus. But that's just fine, isn't it, Christian? Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you look weird to the world, Jesus did first. Embrace then the call of being salt and light to a dark and decaying world by walking in the grace that God has called you by. Finally, as we walk in grace, as we seek to live out the grace that God has called us by and saved us by, we find that grace-filled living is spiritual warfare. To live this way is hard, not just physically and culturally, but it's hard spiritually To live this way, Paul says, to live in a counter-cultural manner is difficult. The world will push against it. Satan will defy it. You will be fighting by your repentance and holy living a spiritual battle day by day. So, dear Christian, get ready. Three times in chapter 6, verses 10 through 14, Paul says, stand firm. Listen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heaven, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, Paul says. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Grace-filled living is spiritual warfare. Paul says, stand firm, because you'll need to. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm by taking up the armor of God with all of its elements, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet ready for evangelism, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with all alertness. Dear Christian, knowing that God has called you by his grace so that you can walk in it, be prepared for Christian living. 
knowing that the Christian life is spiritual warfare, it makes no sense to think that we can just take life as it comes. Christian living requires daily awareness of and preparedness for gospel witness and personal spiritual defense. It is utterly impossible to back yourself into Christian maturity and spiritual readiness. It doesn't happen by accident. It takes intentionality and focus. So be prepared for Christian living day by day. Put on these things in a spiritual way. Take your defensive stand with the help of the spirit of God, the word of God, the salvation that you know that you have feet that are ready for evangelism. Stand ready to defend the faith against the onslaught of Satan and his minions. Be prepared for Christian living. But then secondly, commit yourself to preparing others for living like Christ as well. It's one thing to take care of ourselves as Christians to make sure that I'm ready for spiritual warfare. It's another thing altogether to make sure that our other brothers and sisters who may be uh, less mature or younger in the faith, it's another thing altogether to make sure that they are prepared to live like Christ. Just as it is foolish to think that we can fumble our way by accident into maturity in Christ, it is foolish to think that others can do this also. So, dear friend, my, I hope you hear my pastoral plea to you tonight to prioritize disciple-making in your own life. Our children, our students, new believers, even older, immature believers need your help to be prepared to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. They need examples of mature faith from brothers and sisters in Christ who have been taught by others how to dress for the daily battle of pursuing Christian unity for the purpose of growing up in Christ. Young women need God-honoring, culture-defying, older women to show them how to live as godly women. Young men need Christ-exalting and bravely resolute older men to teach them how to lead and love their families and their churches like Christ leads and loves the church. It's a war out there, Christian. And we are stronger together than we can ever be apart. So be prepared for Christian living. But commit yourself to preparing others for living like Christ also. Man, Ephesians is a wonderful book. I feel like we've, we've barely scratched the surface tonight. And I hope that you'll take time to read through this book throughout the week and maybe throughout uh, the, the rest of the summer. And, and just soak it in. Read it slowly. Read it with a pencil, a pen in hand, with a highlighter. If, if, if you want to come and see, I'll show you my copy of Ephesians and, and how marked up it got this week. It looks like Joseph's Technicolor dream coat. Because there's just so much in there. Read it slowly, take it in little by little, but understand this, that God has called us by grace in order to walk in it. If you get anything else from this book tonight, get that, that God has called you by his grace in order to live in the same way in the world around us. Now, what's the significance of Jesus in Ephesians? Knowing that Christ is the center of the scriptures, he's the thing that everything is pointing to. What's his significance in the book of Ephesians? I would point out just two things to us tonight. There are others, but I'll point out two. First of all, Christ is the seat. He's the location of all God's blessing. Christ is the location of all of God's blessing. Ephesians 1 verse 3, we read it earlier, says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Phrases like this, in him, in Christ, in the beloved, in the Lord Jesus, in the Lord, in whatever noun you want to substitute for the person of Jesus, that phrase appears 34 times in Ephesians. 
34 times Paul says something is happening in Christ. Something is located in Christ. Some good thing God is doing in salvation is located in the person of Jesus. He says it 34 times in Ephesians and 13 times in just chapter 1. See the centrality of Christ in all. All that God is doing in the world to bring lost sinners to reconciliation and redemption in him. Christ is the seat. He's the location of all of God's blessings. So if you need a blessing from the Lord, go to Christ. Find it in him. Rest in him. Secondly, Christ is not just the seat of all God's blessing, but he is our authority. He's our authority. Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23, Paul says that God put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And in Ephesians 5, 23 through 27, he says, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So then he turns to husbands, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If there is anyone leader among us, friends, if there is anyone authority over us in our lives, it is Christ. If there is any one rudder for the church, it is Jesus who steers the ship. If there is any one captain at the helm, it is Christ risen from the dead. If there is any one master and commander of, of faith and, and of the, the agents of the gospel that are the church, it is Jesus who gave his life to save her. He is our authority. It is him that we follow. It is his life that we model ours after. It is his death and resurrection that has saved us. And it's the grace that we receive through faith in him that guides our walking. So, dear friend, turn your eyes to Christ. Set yourself in submission to him and to his word. He is our head. He is our authority. And it's his death and uh, atone, uh, death for atonement for sins that we remember together as a church tonight. We take a piece of bread, we drink uh, from a a similar common cup to remember Christ's body, which was broken for us, his blood, which was shed for us. He who is the head of the church gave himself, sparing no expense to bring us into the grace of God that we might be redeemed. This small meal uh, we call the Lord's Supper is a declaration of the gospel to ourselves We remind ourselves of how God saved us, the means of our redemption, which is through Christ's death and in his resurrection. This is a meal for believers. Scripture teaches us that the body is to take it together. And the body is composed of all those who have made public profession of faith in Jesus and are walking consistently with that profession. So, friend, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, uh, uh, we just ask that you kindly refrain from taking this meal tonight. Because in doing so, you'd be saying something about yourself that is not true. Likewise, parents, if you have young children who have not yet made a public profession of faith, use this as an opportunity to remind your children of the gospel, that Jesus died for them, that that God in his love for them, because of his great mercy, has sent Jesus to pay the penalty for their sins. Use this as a time to point your children to Jesus. 
In a moment, I'll pray, and as I do, I'll ask our deacons who are going to come and, uh, and stand by the table to come and, uh, and, and, uh, and stand by the table to attend the elements. And um, uh, as I finish uh, praying, you all just come forward, uh, grab the elements, and then return to your seat, and we'll take them all together as one body uh, in Christ. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word.